Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. I'm also happy to say that he's my dad, and it was his birthday recently. So happy birthday, Dad. How are you doing? Thank you. Thank you. Honestly, I kind of have this funny sense that we complete laps around the sun, and I Mm. I literally sort of imagine it, you know, Earth zooming around the sun, and now we're where we started, and uh, we're back again where I began many moons ago, uh, and I am now embarking on my next lap around the sun, which just tickles me. Honestly, I'm just kind of blown away that I get to exist and you get to exist (laughs) (laughs) nearly 14 billion years after the bang bigged or the big banged or something Mm -hmm. like that, you know? So anyway, no, I'm really actually really happy. I'm very happy you're my son too. You're my companion uh, in my laps around the sun. Oh, well, thanks dad. I really appreciate that. That's all. That's a really sweet reflection. And I think it's really true. And sometimes it's nice to kind of take a step back and appreciate the uh, the enormity of what we're all engaged in together just by the act of existing, which is pretty cool stuff. It is really, yeah. Yeah, it was my birthday recently as well. Um, I came in a little bit before you and I've got, you know, about half as many birthdays as you do. And we're going to use this opportunity to sort of reflect on pretty much everything that's happened to this point, both in the podcast and in a sense, kind of in our lives together. Uh, Today, we're going to have the first of two episodes dedicated to the 10 most important practices, ideas, concepts, kind of however you want to think about and frame this. Lessons from the road of life. Yeah, lessons from the road. That's a great way to put it. That have had the greatest kind of positive impact on our lives so far, and that, you know, hopefully we think might be helpful for your life as well. Um, So this is going to be sort of a greatest hits episode. Again, it's going to be in two parts. The first one's today. Next one's going to be next week. And each of us only get to pick five. And this was a painful process, I think, for both of us. Uh, Rick reflected that he's lived for twice as many years, so maybe he should get twice as many picks. I I did not allow him to do this. (laughs) Twice as much wisdom, maybe? Who knows? (laughs) I'm thinking of mine as all kind of being tied for first place. uh, And there are a bunch of others that both of us could have picked. So, you know, these are no particular order. There is no ranking associated with it. And they're really just the the ones that made the final cut for us. And at least in my case, there were the ones that I could kind of unnesting doll multiple other ideas into and kind of hide them inside of it. Um, so I sort of cheated a little bit and got more than five that way. So does that all sound good for to you, Dad? Oh, I'm delighted, um, actually. And uh, it goes kind of to a reflection that hmm. I heard a long time ago and I, I put into Buddha's brain. This idea of if the view from the porch, so if one imagines oneself comfortably in old, old age, looking back on one's life from the porch, as it were, in the rocking chair, from that perspective, what will you wish that you had done? What will you wish that your life had included, had been organized around even, in terms of basic Mm. principles, basic lessons, basic rules of thumb. And that's maybe a way that people might uh, frame this for themselves as they listen. What might be your top five rules of thumb or lessons from the road that that you've acquired in your life um, and yet you hope to keep 
front of mind as you keep on moving forward down the road of life in your own personal laps around the sun. <laughs> All right, I think that's a great framework. It's a good way to think about it. Uh, do you want to want to start as the elder statesman of okay. the podcast? He with more experience and more years. <laughs> well, uh, you know what's the saying in medicine, right? Good judgment comes from experience, mm. and experience comes from bad judgment. So, yes, indeed, I've definitely had some experience. Uh, well, my first one <laughs> is get on your own side. Mm. To me, that's absolutely fundamental. It's foundational, and it's surprisingly absent or inconsistent for many, 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 many people. For me as a longtime therapist, one of the first things that I learned when I was with people was how often that's exactly where we had to start. They were coming to see me because they were suffering in some way, but in a fundamental way, they weren't for themselves with regard mm. to their own suffering. They could be loyal and determined and for other people, but they didn't have that stance of supportiveness and decency, encouragement, compassion, and kindness for themselves. So that's absolutely, absolutely fundamental. It doesn't mean that you're against others. It doesn't mean that you're narcissistic and selfish. In a funny kind of way, when a person has a healthy sense of being on their own side, kind of in the core of their own being, then they take the kind of actions which manage problems, adapt to changing conditions, and grow the good inside so that actually they feed themselves, they fill themselves mm. up, and they're less inclined to be a complete narcissistic jerk. Now, there are conspicuous <laughs> exceptions occasionally sure. to this general principle, but it's a pretty good principle. People who take mm -hmm. really good care of themselves tend to be uh, richer inside in their capacity to take care of others. So that's my first one. Get on your own side. Yeah, that's been a major theme on the podcast. Just the idea of filling up your own cup so you yeah. can pour more into the cups of other people, I think is deeply true. It also reminds me of a classic Rick reflection, which we actually used in the very beginning of the book Resilient Together, which is your story of being a kid and being kind of outside of the house and having this broader reflection on your life to that point, which kind of flows right into something that I'm going to be talking about, um, and the ways in which you have to be, as, just as you said, kind of on your own side, irrespective of the circumstances that are going on around yeah. you. And it's a really sweet story as well. Well, And I want to underline what you just pointed out for us, which is the harder our life is, the mm -hmm. more we need to be on our own side. And that stance of allyship, advocacy, supportiveness, moxie, determination, et cetera, for ourselves is fundamentally independent of our circumstances. We can mobilize it and we can stand in it no matter what's happening around us. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. So I'm going to kind of take that and wander right into my first one. So again, yours, get on your own side, support yourself even as you support other people. I'm going to talk about what I said a second ago, which is that reflection of you being a kid, being outside of your parents' house, sort of having a recognition of what was going on inside of it. I think it's really important, and it's been a huge part of my own personal journey of growth and discovery, um, to respect the impact of childhood experiences. This is kind of cheating because I'm basically putting all of developmental psychology into one of my five headings. Uh, so I'm definitely doing some serious shorthand here. But one of the ways that this is talked about sometimes is as creating a coherent narrative of your childhood. Uh, take the opportunity as an adult 
to look back on and reflect about the ways in which those experiences changed you in lasting ways. One of the things that uh, has really stood out to me out of all of the podcasts that we've ever done together is one of our conversations, which was with Bruce Perry, um, who is a wonderful expert on childhood trauma and childhood experiences and the long tail of those experiences over time. And I think it's just easy to look at kids as being kind of big larvae, essentially. <laughs> They're just these big feeling organisms and they kind of just thrash around and do stuff. And it's our job as adults to kind of make sure that they don't break too many things until they become top-down thinking individuals in adulthood. And it, until they become full-fledged <laughs> insects. Yeah. Insects, yeah, we go from larvae <laughs> to insects, right? But the truth is that the experiences that we have during that period of time are deeply formative, and they really create the underlying nature that we express and reflect as adults. I had such a such a kind of dramatic experience for me in terms of my personal development was going back and watching these old videos of myself that we had around the house and just seeing the the impulses that I had as a kid, the elements of my you know, if such a thing is true, my core nature, my deep self, whatever, that were getting expressed out through that kid's behavior and the ways in which as I've become an adult and learned how to better regulate myself, I've kind of regulated out some of those behaviors that were really key parts of my core nature. And so I think that for most people doing that kind of reflection on what happened to you when you were a kid. What was the world like around you? What were the lessons that you learned from the older people in your life? What were the lessons that you learned from the other kids in your life? I'm thinking about how that can frame our relationship with authority and our relationship with our peers, even to this day. Um, and so for me, it was just such an impactful part of my own development. Well, as, as obviously your father, who was there <laughs> at the scene of the crime, yeah, you know, when it happened, uh, I find that really touching. and. Reflecting on what I saw in a lot of those videos, and I was there yeah. when it all happened too, to build on what you're saying for us, which is touching to me as a psychologist that you would go to childhood and touching to me as a father that you would also go to childhood. <laughs> you know, one of the things to, to be aware of as well is not um, some, in, in addition to the ways that we, are, we were shaped by our circumstances, including difficult, hard ones. I think there's a part in what you're saying that's about appreciating, honoring, and reclaiming what was beautiful about ourselves as a kid Absolutely. in our nature. Yeah. Like Huge you had this deeply joyful, positive, mm -hmm. hey, let's have fun kind of nature. Hey, let's look mm -hmm. for where the fun is, quality. And that's very much your characteristic. And also, even though sometimes creative struggles with you on the playground, a profound sense of fairness, a mm -hmm. profound sense of fairness and justice in you. So I think for many people, it's actually really useful to reflect on themselves, maybe even look at pictures of themselves as a kid, push past any feelings of shame or awkwardness they might have, and then see the beautiful being there. And what was the nature of that child and their own particular mm -hmm. nature? And maybe today, potentially 50, 60 years later, what might be some appropriate ways to make more room for those qualities in yourself and to express them more in the life that you have these days? Yeah, I think that's really well said, um, particularly that note about shame. I really personally feel that uh, shame and the experience of shame or responses to shame is in some ways our most powerful emotion. I mean, they're all kind of tied for first place, right? But shame is such a huge part of the developmental experience. And there, there's a lot of interesting research if you go into developmental psychology on 
the creation of shame and different kinds of shame and the nature of being a child, that kind of helpless sensing organism and having experiences that are naturally shameful and having parents respond to you in inadvertently shaming ways, whether it's about emptying your diaper or whatever else, you know? I mean, these are really profound experiences that we don't remember these days, but they still leave some form of impact on us. And reflecting back to that time when we're kids, it's easy to feel a lot of that shame story reappear as we, I mean, not quite relive those experiences, but reflect on those lived experiences. And I mean, certainly for me watching the videos, there were definitely moments where I was watching six-year-old Forrest do something and going, wow, 32-year-old Forrest, or whatever age I was at the time, is not feeling so great about six-year-old Forrest's behavior. Which is, of course, totally ridiculous. You were a kid. Things happen. People do stuff, you know? But that shame can really get in the way, I think. And so I think it's a really important note that you're making there. So I guess it's my turn next, huh? Yeah, your turn. All, All right. right. So those are our first two. So, Rick, yeah. how about number three? Widen your view. See the big picture. As you know, for us from the negativity bias, when that one red light starts flashing on the inner dashboard or out there in the world, we overfocus upon it and we lose sight of the whole. Mm. It's also true when we get caught up in something that we're um, positively attached to. We want to make a goal happen. We get driven about it in a tense and contracted sense or even addicted to a particular result. Or, or let's say in my case, with some tendencies toward excessive orderliness and OCD-ishness, <laughs> I'm really caught up in how the, you know, the kitchen drawer ought to be really organized and people ought to do it the right way from now on, right? And we can just get identified with a particular desire or a particular mm. thing that happened and stuck to it. And one of the deep lessons, I think, again and again, is to see the big picture, take more into account, take more of them into account. Uh, more people, more dynamics, take more into account what's happening in their minds, take more into account inside your own inner world, your own depths, including the younger depths, the uh, evolutionarily primal depths, you know, the inner lizard, mouse and monkey, as it were, inside us all. Take more into account. And even more broadly, the larger sweep of space and time. The world as a whole seven and a half billion other people, each one of whom, generally speaking, is as precious to themselves as you are to yourself. They think they are as important as you think you are important on the whole. Also, the vast number of factors that lead things, countries, businesses, individuals to act as they do. And then the sweep of time. You know, I had this experience. I, I was fortunate enough to be able to go to uh, Greece and the Mediterranean about five years ago, went to Crete and a number of these islands there. And, and you start to realize as you're walking through a field, just dry grass, no big deal, when you suddenly see a row of stones on the ground that are very orderly and you realize this, these were the walls of someone's home 3,000 mm. years ago. Mm -hmm. Or you walk on islands and you realize, because you see in the distance this sort of large circle of islands, kind of roughly 10 miles in diameter, which is the perimeter of an exploding volcano 3,200 3, years ago that completely disrupted the life of the Mediterranean. And you, you realize as well, when you know a little bit about the Romans and the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Persians and whatnot, there's a lot of blood in the ground. 
It's mm. a big, long picture. And most likely, much as the human species has been around in terms of anatomically modern humans for roughly 300,000 years, the odds are greatest that we're roughly in the middle of the duration of our species lifetime as a species rather than at the tails of it. So hmm. I have a strong hunch that one way or another in a warmer planet, humans are going to be here in 10,000 years. Maybe they will have gotten a grip on global warming by then, I hope. But anyway, so it, it's just helpful. <laughs> what an optimistic worldview, yeah. Dad. <laughs> one way or another, one way or another, just to take a wider view and help yourself be less hijacked by and identified with and reactive to um, little specific small things um, in terms of the bigger picture. Do you find that just that reflection broadly helps you tune into that? Or are there specific practices or exercises that you've done when you're in a moment of feeling kind of constrained and narrow around a certain sort of thing to expand your view? Right. So first, uh, mindfulness, mm. you know, spaciousness, a, a sense of stepping back, disidentification, to, to realize the fundamental distinction that you talk about in which you can have reactions, which is different from being your reactions. Yeah. That's part one. And then also when I pulled together the research for the latest book, Neurodharma, one of the really telling things is for multiple reasons, or engaging multiple circuits, broadly speaking, in your brain, the value of getting a sense of things as a whole. So I'll do a thing a lot, which I've practiced now more and more, of feeling your body as a whole while you breathe. Mm. Maybe you can start with a small space, like you feel your chest as a whole, and then your upper body as a whole, and then your whole body as you breathe. And then you can also do a thing where you lift your gaze to the horizon. That also has big benefits. You can also get a sense of the room as a whole. Mm. A little bit of meditative awareness, you can literally get a sense of what's always the case, your own mind as a whole, your own streaming of consciousness as a whole. The whole streaming, including awareness, whew, as a whole. And those are good methods. They have a lot of effect. I think that's a great practice. Um, it's certainly one, I, particularly the stuff that you put in in neurodharma. It was in resilient a little bit, but mostly in neurodharma about the allocentric versus the egocentric kind yeah. of models of experiencing, which is sort of a formal way to talk about the difference between focusing on a narrow sense of the individual and a broader sense of the whole. And just like the research on lifting your eyes to the horizon and how it activates a different part of your brain, I thought was really cool. Yeah, and another trick is like a Tibetan trick, apparently. Imagine, be aware of the volume of the room, distinct from mm, the particular mm -hmm. elements within it. Get a sense of the volume. And also, imagine your way into the mind of another person. Mm, just think, mm -hmm. like I could think right now, about all the things that are kicking around in your head right now and heart. Yeah. You're thinking totally. about, you know, you're dealing with when we're done here, you're going to go on to do. And these people in your life, you're wondering about them. They're kind of bubbling around. So many things bubbling around, right? And yeah. that's, another, that's another thing we can do. I think that's great. I mean, you kind of cued me into at least two, if not all of the other ones that I had picked out here so I could really kind of go in any different direction. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go with one that people have heard me say 
a dozen times um, on this podcast already. So, you know, I'll try to kind of think about it in a different sort of way. Um, and it's to slow down, essentially. Mm. Slowing down and particularly, to use the language that I normally use, expand the space between a stimulus and your response to it mm. so that you're fundamentally responding to things rather than quote-unquote reacting to them. I think that this lesson can apply in almost every part of our lives. I think like it's a pretty phenomenal close. practice. Slow yeah, I think it's a down. really, really important one. And some of this you can think of abstractly, of course. Um, but for some of it, I think that it's actually really helpful to think about it really concretely in terms of how the brain works. Uh, there are a lot of different ways to think about this. One of the most well-known ones is uh, Daniel Kahneman and thinking fast and slow with system one and system two in the brain. System one is basically our fast-responding brain, um, automatic processes, habits, biases, things like that. And system two is the more slow, regulated, top-down control, conscious part of the brain. You could also think about it as our subconscious versus our conscious, however you want to put it. Um, the problem is that the fast parts of the brain the habit system, biases, all of that stuff is kind of the dumb part. And I don't say that to like neg your brain. You know, the brain is an amazing system. We want to be really grateful for it, all of that good stuff. Um, but the faster that something is happening, the more attached it becomes to our habit systems. And our habit systems are filled with biases of different kinds, um, implicit biases, uh, attribution biases, a whole host of cognitive biases, whatever else. And these systems are really, really good at identifying the like what's right to do in nine times out of 10. But they're really bad at identifying the one time out of 10. And you have a lot of experiences through the course of your life. I have a lot of experiences through the course of my life. And one out of 10 times comes up really, really often, I say, as somebody who used to play poker for a living. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it comes up surprisingly frequently. And uh, we can get into a lot of trouble when we're purely being attached to the fast-reacting habit systems in the brain. Of course, this is super true in our relationships with other people. Think about all the times in an interaction where somebody says something that rubs you a little bit the wrong way. And you just have an immediate surge in the mm -hmm. body, a surge of energy, a surge of disgust, a surge of whatever. Most of the time, 99% of the time, if not more frequently than that, I think it's really healthy to put an extra half second in between that experience and whatever happens next. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think this is, to get into a little political commentary, particularly important these days as we approach an election in the United States, there are a lot of reactions happening, maybe a particularly important lesson for right now. And I've just found it so personally useful in my life. Mm. What do you do though for people who maybe are excessively tilted toward over-reflection, paralysis sure, yeah. by analysis, totally. or they're, they're even temperamentally, I don't want to call it, just sort of more sluggish? somehow? Or or maybe their automatic reactions move them. I mean, a lot of the time we think about an automatic reaction as moving us into effectively anger systems, oppositional systems, opposing. What if your automatic reaction is you're too submissive, you know, or subservient frozen. or whatever else? Frozen. That's kind of another version of maybe what you're talking about here a little bit, Dad. For the second version, the one that I just named, it's about recognizing that, again, that's an automatic response. 
That's not you, that's your habit systems. That is the little bits and pieces that have kind of gotten into your behavior over time. And we can take that moment of reflection and use it to choose to be more aggressive Hmm. in the exact same way that we can take that moment of reflection and use it to choose to be a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more pulled back, a little bit more regulated, right? The point is about agency. It's about being at choice. So as long as you're the one who is controlling that choice, I think that you're okay here. And I would kind of say the same thing about people who are overly reflective. You know, are you overly reflective because this is a coping mechanism, because this is a form of procrastination, which is, again, based on the habit systems of the brain, the fast acting, I don't want to have to apply top-down control. Or are you doing it because, you know, it's kind of an element of your character and you enjoy doing it. You enjoy being deeply thoughtful about things. You like taking a little bit of extra space and time before you come to a decision. In those cases, I don't really have a personal problem with that. But again, I think that that space can help us recognize if we're doing something because it's a coping behavior, as opposed to because it's what we actually want to be doing. Does that kind of answer the question? Oh, it completely does, Forrest. And I'm endlessly astonished and tickled pink how wise my punk <laughs> kid is. Who's <laughs> no longer a kid, but anyway. <laughs> but what you made me think about was myself for a really long time in that yeah. um, I, I know this is not how you mean it, but I just want to name yeah, sure. it because totally. I could have used it this way. That I think for many people, for some people at least, so-called slowing down could be co-opted problematically in the oh, service yeah, of- sure. A way in which they're always holding back for the Mm. last battle. They're not fully invested in life. They're not fully committed to use a certain kind of language. They haven't fully incarnated bodily, fleshily inside their own real life. And it's sort of like, you know, the old line about, uh, you know, putting one uh, toe in the pool or the, the the parable of the person who is deciding whether to get onto a boat from a dock. And they say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll step onto it and see how it is. And then I'll decide what to do. And they step on the boat. And no, this is okay so far. One leg on the boat, one leg on the dock. Boat starts moving away from the dock, a foot mm. away from the dock, two feet away from the dock. It's still okay. You know, it's like getting a little uncomfortable. I don't know about this boat. Three feet away from the dock, man, this is horrible. If it hurts this much to have one foot on the boat, what would two feet be like? And then the person Mm. comes back to the dock, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) And so I was just reflecting here in what you were saying about the bodily feeling of being fully engaged Mm. and grounded in and given over to and present in and committed to your own life while reserving the right to slow down when that's appropriate inside that framework. Yeah, totally. I mean, giving just adding to what you're saying and making it a little bit personal. I think that what you're describing, that's sort of a little, I mean, withholdings has such a negative connotation on it. But that little bit of like additional, not quite kind of going to go all in on this feeling or uh, if I step a little bit too far in, I'm going to get hurt in some way, there's going to be pain associated, whatever. I mean, we've talked about it extensively on the podcast. That was absolutely my experience for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I don't think that this sort of idea of adding some space between the stimulus and response made that worse. I think it made it better. And the way that it made it better was, again, absolutely recognizing that my impulse in the moment mm-hmm. is to be here. 
is to, and I don't, if you're not watching the video, it's if to hold my upper body back to yeah. kind of pull away from yeah. what we're doing right now. And, and that was my regulatory response. Mm. That was how I dispersed stress effectively yeah. and, and got it out of my body, you know, it was by increasing that separation, increasing that distance. And it wasn't a choice I was making actively. It's something that my body was doing unconsciously to try to protect me. Hmm. And while that is a honorable impulse, it's not always in the service of our better angels, to put it a certain kind of way. So having that space to allow myself to take on a new way of being, which wasn't built into my automatic reactions, was, I think, of, of great service. It's something I'm still working on, to be clear. It's not a finished product. Uh, but it has been very, very helpful for me so far. So I, I've mm -hmm. definitely found it useful, even as mm -hmm. somebody who tended to take a little bit too much space. Mm. That's very good. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, okay. I think that that is four. Let's go to your third one, Dad. So this is five. Okay. Take in the good. Mm, now, classic. how could I not have that in my <laughs> list, right? But that's just fundamental, uh, taking yeah. the good, um, and by, by which I mean uh, learn from what's useful. Mm. Grow a little, heal a little, develop a little every day. Deal with the bad, turn to the good, take in the good. Those for me are the three great sort of ongoing important movements in life, um, which include, of course, deal with the bad, deal with problematic. But as we've talked at length, but I'll just summarize briefly for anyone who hasn't heard it, whatever you want to grow inside, mm. in terms of happiness or love or wisdom or commitment to exercise or more skillfulness in a multicultural world or whatever it is, actually, you want to develop inside, you develop it in a two-step process in which, first, you must experience it, and second, mm. you must convert that experience into some lasting change in your brain. That's the bottom line. And without that second step, without that trace left behind as a change that's lasting, a durable change of neural structure or function, by definition, you have not um, gained anything, you have not acquired anything from the experience that you've had. It was momentarily nice, it was momentarily helpful, maybe some nice things might ripple out from it, but in terms of what you carry with you wherever you go, you haven't woven, in, woven any new good thing into your own being in terms of who you are and who you are becoming. And that's just been a deep one for me. You know, look for the good and then take in the good and even use the good you take in to heal what is hurting or missing inside yourself. Uh, the presence of the bad matters. The absence of the good matters as well inside our own being. And as I've talked and you know, I had the presence of some bad growing up, but I had a lot the absence of the good, especially in terms of feeling um, understood, empathized with, valued, and wanted. And so mm. for me, it's been incredibly important in the, this is the linking step in the HEAL framework in which we link positive to negative to ease it, soothe it, and heal it. I would repeatedly take in the good of experiences in college and then continuing into later adulthood, take in the good of genuine experiences of friendliness coming toward me and gratitude coming toward me, mm. uh, inclusion coming toward me and so forth, and then really try to help it get in touch with these aching, longing, underfed 
parts of myself rooting back, going all the way back into very early childhood. And mm. anyway, taking in the good. And I, I just think that's so fundamental and it's super hopeful because it means that every day in the inner sanctuary, the innermost temple of our being, we mm. can grow a little, we can learn a little, we can become a little wiser, we can disengage a little more from that, those old habits that we're still carrying around. And that's uh, incredibly helpful that we have that power. No one can defeat us there in the innermost temple, and no one can do the work for us there. So we are responsible for it, and therefore we, mm. we earn the fruits of our practice. And I find that this idea of oneself as a learner, you know, what's a growth mindset, you know, mm -hmm. as I said, Carol Dweck's wonderful work. When we have this kind of a growth mindset and we're very skillful inside ourselves and we claim agency inside our own minds in terms of helping ourselves grow and learn every day, that itself just feels good, at a, especially at a time when a lot of people feel buffeted and squashed and frustrated and, you know, defeated by all kinds of powerful yeah. external forces. But inside your own mind, you can never be defeated as a learner. So you've talked about taking in the good for 20 years now, roughly something like that ballpark. Um, if not, maybe even longer than that. That's kind of my recollection of it. And as an aside, if you happen to be listening to this because you're new to the podcast and there was some terminology there, I mean, we've talked about it so much on the show, I don't really want to get into it for people who have been listening for a long time. But uh, I'll include a link to one of the many blog posts that you've written on taking in the good and the heal framework and all of that so people can take a, um, take a look at it if they're interested in the description of today's podcast. But anyway, you've been talking about this stuff for 20 years or, or longer. Yeah, I'm trying to find the right way to put this, but basically, is there what are the ways in which your kind of understanding of this idea of taking in the good has evolved over time? Is there something that you're doing now with it that you weren't doing 20 years ago? Is there a way that you think about it now that you didn't think about it 20 years ago? Mainly what's happened is that I've gotten crisper and clearer and more grounded in neurology in my, mm. and, and even in evolutionary neuropsychology uh, in terms of really building out and explicating an intuitively natural practice that I stumbled on, I think by the, when I was 16 or 17 I, as a freshman mm, in college. Mm. And so that's, I think the main thing that's happened. One thing that uh, in terms of that explication, it is a great question actually, is that when I talk about the good, I don't mean only smelling the flowers. Mm, mm -hmm. And it's easy to trivialize what I'm talking about. And I find that routinely people unwittingly trivialize it or they really misunderstand it. I'm really talking about learning in the broadest sense. Developing, learning, healing, the acquisition of capabilities, positive moods, strengths, the, the stabilization of awakenings. Mm. You know, we have these experiences uh, with or without psychedelics, uh, usually without. We have these experiences and we, it's as if we're suddenly transported into another mm -hmm. place, or a vista has opened up for us, right? What can we do to stable, to establish ourselves in that new place or to keep the window open inside our mind? So that's what I'm really talking about broadly. And I'm fine with the ways in which this practice can help people in the flow of their day have more positive experiences 
because they're mm-hmm. looking for the good to take in. But yeah, the that's great. point of it all is to take it in. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of what we take <laughs> in doesn't actually feel enjoyable uh, yeah. in the moment. Maybe it's like an important idea or perspective mm-hmm. review mm-hmm. or intention. Uh, like I um, have a strong intention with your support to exercise more regularly these days. And it isn't so much that I like that intention, but it's a very important intention to help become increasingly habitual for myself at this ripe old age. So that's, I guess that. The other thing that has really stood out for me, Forrest, hmm. and I, I don't understand it to this day, honestly, it's why is it so hard for so many people, including professionals in hmm. the growth business, to focus on the actual process of growth? In other words, why is it so hard for people to recognize the central importance of the second step of any kind of lasting learning, the conversion from state to trade, the movement mm-hmm. from experiencing to internalizing. Like, it's really striking to me, and I see it all the time. I see it yeah, in totally. major league teachers who I have learned a lot from myself, and there are, many of them are from my friends, and they pay lip service to this idea of internalization, and then they leave it out every single mm-hmm. time they make a presentation. When in fact, in 90 seconds or less, they could just mention to people, by the way, if there's anything useful that you're gaining from this workshop or this class or this retreat or this guided program, you know, slow down for a breath or longer to kind of marinate in the experience, to keep the neural activity going and to maybe feel it in your body, focus on what feels good about it or do other things that I've talked about that are evidence-based techniques you can use inside your own mind that plausibly increase the conversion rate, the neuroplastic conversion rate from experiencing to physical change in your own hardware of your, of your brain. And I, that part is still a mystery to me. Why is that left out? <laughs> we continually chase experiences. We get really good at inducting people into experiences. Yeah. They're like new stars on the self-help scene who are really good at drawing people into experiences. That's great. But are people changing for the better in durable mm. ways, particularly the two-thirds or so of people who typically, and you can see this as well in research studies, don't tend, they're not, they don't change on a dime. You know, they're the ones that for whatever reason, it's just not sinking in. And mm-hmm. why don't we teach them how to help themselves? You know, a dozen seconds at a time, ha- have stuff sink in. I don't, that part, it's, it, it has not become any less of a mystery. Yeah, totally. I'm, I'm thinking about it in terms of the kind of, um, and look, I'm guilty of this myself, to be clear. I'm certainly not perfect about it. I don't think many people are, but just kind of the Instagramification of the self-help industry. Um, we have an Instagram for this podcast. It's at Being Well Podcast, and we share mostly kind of quote pictures and things like that. And my hope, of course, is that people look at these little snippets and they have a landing moment with them where... It's sort of a funny way to talk about it, but often what happens is that I will be in a lecture for a class, I'm thinking about college, or I'll be in a workshop for some self-helpy thing or whatever else, and I'll forget almost everything that happens in that class or in that workshop. But there'll be one sentence that landed where I actually took the time to do exactly what you're talking about. And the sentence stood out to me. It had to be really salient initially. And then I had to have a moment where I looked at that and I went, 
huh. Exactly. And I just kind of exhaled with it. I just went, oh, you know, whether I wrote it down or didn't. I think that sometimes people um, in those circumstances, this is a whole other conversation, actually take too many notes. And they trust that the notes that they take will serve that function. But think about how often you actually go back and review the notes that you wrote, right? Often yeah. for most people, it's pretty infrequent. I'm, again, way more guilty about this than probably most people are. But again, it's about like, did you have that opportunity to have a landing moment? Did you fully experience that landing moment? Um, and did you really let it kind of change you? And I think that we produce so much content these days mm that sometimes the the hydrant hose of content can almost get in the way of people's ability to slow down and learn one thing, right? Like actually learn one thing, not consume 10 things and learn none of them, mm. which I think, you know, so many of us are guilty these days, again, kind of myself included. Super well said. And um, at some level, to me, this is a really sacred process. Who are we becoming? You know, on, on average, roughly two-thirds of the variation in adulthood of who we are becoming is not genetically rooted in the narrow mm-hmm. sense of heritable characteristics. So the, it's wide open. It's constrained loosely. We're not all going to develop mental telepathy and the capacity to fly <laughs> through outer space. You know, there's a, there's a range. But, I mean, speak for yourself. But, yeah. But. Okay. Sorry, Forrest. I didn't mean to <laughs> rain on your parade. Uh, <laughs> although, if, uh, I always I, did want to be a wizard. I know when if I was you get psychiatrists, you, know? you might want to talk with them mm-hmm. about some of these delusions. Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's sacred. Who are we becoming? Yeah. And is your becoming this two thirds of roughly who you are becoming? Is it a haphazard, willy nilly process of just being tugged and shoved and pushed? here and there by all the currents swarming through your own life. Like you're some sort of balsa wood boat just spinning down the Amazon, being you know, rained on and stormed on and all the piranhas are bumping into you and who knows what. Anyway, <laughs> or are you in some way, shape or form without getting obsessive about it, without falling into the pitfalls of uh, uh, becoming overly preoccupied in who you are manufacturing and you know, my brand, it's authenticity. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, no, no, okay, avoid those pitfalls. But why not exercise some kind of existential influence over who you are becoming? It's really sacred, actually. No, I think that's totally right on. Um, I'm glad that we got into it a little bit with taking in the good, which obviously is such a central practice, both for your work broadly and also on this podcast. You could really connect it to almost everything that we teach because yeah. it's how you get that teaching to stick, which is obviously a really important part of the process. So I think that was really great. That was certainly a lot of fun for me. I hope it was fun for you as well. That is our first five of our top 10 practices for the road of life, kind of however you want to refer to it. And uh, we will be coming back again next week with the next five. But to do a quick recap here, I talked about uh, respecting the impact of childhood experiences and slowing down, increasing the space between a stimulus and a response. Rick, would you mind doing your top three really quick? Oh yeah, I talked about getting on your own side, widening your view, and taking in the good. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, 
And hey, if you want to be a friend, leave a rating and a positive review. Um, it really helps us in the old iTunes rankings and all of that stuff. And hopefully it helps more people find the podcast, which we would really appreciate. It's great to be able to provide this resource to people in this way. Uh, also, if you really, really want to support the show and you've been enjoying it for a while, please consider joining us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. I put together pretty lengthy show notes for each episode that we do that are detailed. They go into the research and the concepts behind each episode. Uh, we do a monthly Q&A on it for our patrons, our Patreons, our patrons. I think it's patrons. And uh, there are a bunch of other little, goodie, little goodies there as well. Uh, and again, we just really appreciate your support. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.